Hi and welcome to episode 17, season 3 of the Glenfor podcast with your host Jason, JJ, and we are going to be looking at another two entries on the website, uh, namely um, a logbook entry from the 15th of May 1943, so still very much in the, the depths of the war, and also the, the chapter from uh, Philip Morris, um, from his book from the early 1980s. So um, thanks for pressing play. Uh, as always, there probably is a subscribe button and you know we certainly are gaining on the website output. I think Glenvore at the moment is probably going to be weekly, just a weekly post. It sort of suits um, the lifestyle and what I'm doing. And also you might start to see more Glenalbin, which I've got on a monthly um sort of trend at the moment so yep two very different distilleries but obviously very close to one another and interlinked really from the inception of Glenvore but also from the 1920 very much under one ownership and wrongly stated by many to be like uh you know one is a sister distillery of the other which is no it's incorrect they're two very distinct um distilleries with their own character their own person personalities their own personnel who were by all accounts very competitive um but you know there was obviously some symmetry there and um, we do know obviously that glenalbin would help uh, glenvore with malting issues because of its smaller floors um at various times so you know this is all to be discovered and to we know it but we're going to put more layers and tapestry on top of it and just also create another great uh, resource for a lost distillery but today we're all about Glenvore and um published uh on the 24th of march actually um which ooh, seems like a long time ago but it's probably not that long ago now is it we uh had um philip maurice who um wrote the superb um swept guide to scotch and i interviewed him uh several years ago um which i thought was a great interview and very well received for uh, a website and um, that's still available on the i think i put a link into it on um that's sort of the internet archive so you can go in and read that and it, it just gives you this his thorough research i don't know if anybody had done it to the degree of philip in terms of building uh this catalog almost of independent bottlers uh, and companies involved in scotch um and that book because of the efforts he did back then still stands the test of time today long out of print um you can see some i was going to say flippers but chancers um you know charging a lot for it but shop around you know um it was a good volume you get this book and it's just a great resource and this particular chapter doesn't come from that this spun off um philip was asked to write almost like not a sequel but uh a modern day refurbishment and revitalization of alfred barnard's um fantastic book which gives us so much uh and also denies us so much in a way as well um from his uh 19 early 1980s tour of the uk uh, and particularly Scottish distilleries. Now, Glenvore did not appear in that book because it was very much, you know, a figment of someone's imagination perhaps at the time. So in a way, Philip's return uh, gives us almost like a lost chapter. You know, this is the Glenvore entry. And we have um, a nice 
uh, hand-drawn photo, uh, pick, you know, drawings in this book. The book itself is exceptionally rare. I have heard silly prices and people trading silly things for this book. You know, it's very rare. Um, some signed, some not signed, um, but a very limited pressing and has almost uh, an iconic sort of stature in um, Scotch whiskey, which is great in many ways, but also it denies us because Philip hasn't re published, um, you know, reprinted, sorry, uh, various reasons for that, read the interview, but certainly it would be on his uh, agenda to do. <clears throat> and I know speaking to him at the time of that interview, he did have audio recordings of all the distillery managers he spoke to when researching that book in the 1980s. That in itself is a fantastic find. That in itself needs to be brought back to life. Um, somehow these, these archive interviews um, transported into the digital age but made available for people who really enjoy whiskey history and want to hear the past it's great reading things and i love books and i love sketches as in this book but I, you know i want to hear to see to photographs you know just gives you that extra little bit which sometimes the book and text doesn't capture enough you know it's just those little extras and also who knows what you're capturing in a photograph or video that you might not see at the time but somebody else uh, in future decades finds something really really informative there so in a way that's what we're doing but to go back to Philip's chapter and um, Philip contacted us just to say what fantastic work the website was which was a really appreciated i've had a lot of really good feedback um, particularly at the march tasting we did early march with people just really impressed by the work and the detail and what's being found so thanks to everybody that's very humbling and particularly from philip as well who's obviously in a way blazed the trail for anyone like myself or anyone behind me who will you know he almost set the benchmark in many ways so to get that recognition was fantastic and also the offer of reprinting the glenalbin and glenvore chapters uh which is great uh, and I'm sure if there's a Melbourne one in the book, you'd give me that as well. So we're going to bring these back to you. And we already have done with the Glenvore chapter because, you know, to read the book, to own the book, unless you get very lucky coming across it, uh, maybe in a charity shop or some bookseller doesn't know what they have to hand, uh, you're not going to see it. And it's an important chapter, not only because Philip obviously researches uh extremely well and um authoritative knowledge and you know if he's quoting dates and facts you can pretty much take them you know as being concrete absolutely uh, but his visit to glenvore uh which was in uh, sort of 1985 i believe was when the distilleries were actually being destruct destroyed so we had a walking tour um around the site and obviously i wish <laughs> And maybe he does as well. I never asked him. Camera, photographs, video, which obviously would have been a real novelty back in the 80s. But to, in a way, it's a shame to see the destruction of a distillery. But through its destruction, um, we can maybe learn some things as well. So I haven't actually ever seen any photographs of Glenvore being destroyed. I'm sure they're out there. And there might be some footage somewhere, but that's another thing for the wish list but uh, we have published this chapter and the chapter's great because it does give us a little bit more so it talks about um, the details of um, scotch malt distillers at the time and uh, 
Philip is quite correct in his assertions that it was the first distillery in Scotland to convert, convert from traditional maltings to mechanical maltings. And that's something which we did see a lot of variance across many books. Some were quoting 49, others were into the 50s. Some thought Little Mill was first. No, Glenvor was first. Glenvor's the first malt distillery. If you want to be really, really technical, the first distillery in Scotland is North British. Um, and I think... Um, McKinley and Burnley reached out to them to learn from their experiences before implementing it at their own uh, distillery. But I won't read the whole text. It's all there if you want to read it, but please do. Um, we will supplement that with the Glenalban article, which will be probably in a few weeks' time. That gives us more on the history of ownership. Uh, Philip wisely doesn't repeat all that for the Glenvore chapter. And literally, the Glen Glenalban precedes Glenvore in terms of the running order of the book, so it's all there. And that is that entry. Um, so it's, yeah, I'm thrilled to have that, thrilled to offer it to people who can sit and read it. Uh, I'd like to do that with more books. Whenever I see a, a whiskey book somewhere, particularly the, an old and tatty one that I don't recognise, I, I do like to flick through for any mentions of the distilleries, obviously, that I'm looking at, because you can get some nuggets, you can get some red herrings, as we've seen, you know, even recently with um, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Yearbook, uh, their page on Glenvore, there were a couple uh, inaccuracies there, and I've talked about that recently, and that's just the way of the game, in a way, you know, you're regurgitating some of the inconsistencies and mistruths or misunderstandings of previous generations and books but to actually go back and stick your flag in the sand and say no it was this way this is the way it was this is why that takes a lot of research and a lot of dedication and that's not something um a yearbook or even I don't know, one of these general whiskey books uh, can can accomplish. You know, you really need to have someone just focused on the detailed research and all the dead avenues and wasted effort that it brings, but we get there. Which brings us on to the logbook, which we know, I mean, I don't know if anybody's gone page by page through a logbook, a customs and excise one ever, uh, and brought it to life like we have. And thinking back to the 1936 when it feels that long ago when we started it um why and i don't know why i mean i've always been really good at history i've always been into detail and facts and when you discover these things it's not just reprinting that it's about considering where that slots in and what you think and elsewhere the, the ram ramifications and ripples around other things in that context of the distillery so that's the type that explains the timeline on the website you know i can look at for instance i did a, a logbook entry for 1952 um which obviously is a bit further on than this but immediately i go to the timeline and i look at what's happening what do we know from 1952 and there's a magazine article from william burney there so all these things stack up it's great but in terms of the logbook i don't know I don't know, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Take a page, look at it, try and decipher it, type it up. In effect, bring it into the digital age. Honour uh, the Highland Archive, who obviously are the custodians of this book. Make sure they get credit on every article. 
and uh, the images are watermarked. Uh, I get asked an awful lot about a Glenvor book. Well, that would have to be some sort of non-profit enterprise for me because uh, while I am a custodian of information and discoveries, you know, the original materials in most cases still belong with these institutions and respectfully I have these agreements with them that it's not to make money. So those things would have to be revisited in terms of a book, unless it was a non-profit book. Does anybody do non-profit books these days? I don't know. But each page of the logbook, you know, my thoughts, and I'm so lucky as you are to have Alan Winchester come on board and give his thoughts. You know, an absolute history buff when it comes to whiskey history and also distilling and uh, you know, it's great to see his excitement um, particularly I've uh, a recent entry with a, a whole load of, about a hydrometer um, with um, the exciseman seemed to spark a lot of interest so you'll we'll come to that in future updates you'll see that but the logbook itself we're certainly getting towards the tail end of it now we're in the 40s for this article but um, I'm in the 50s in terms of writing it up and I know it sort of ends six days mid 60s um, and that'll be it uh, in a way very fulfilling very satisfying that we've brought this every single page to life but it has given us so much insight and knowledge but also so many questions but uh, i'm looking forward to doing the same with glenalbin but please forgive me um for having a little break before i start the glenalbin logbook anyway this one for the 15th of May 1943 has the Customs and Excise stamp on it, which I tend to use in the headers. It looks a little bit better. The, you know, no matter what you do with photographing text, you know, it doesn't, it's not sexy, is it? It's not much you can really put to it. So uh, those are there. Um, this particular entry is obviously in 1943, but it shows us the internal workings of Customs and Excise when it comes to excess spirit. Um, now we know and I touched upon this in the article, that uh, the feints at Glenalbin, after their last run, which we have pinpointed when it was, uh, what do you do with them? You know, you're not going to put them down the plug hole or the gutter, are you? You know, there, there's still some value, there's still some starting blocks, I suppose, some DNA there. So we know they were put in casks and rolled across to Glenvor and put into their... Uh, production area for distillation so we had a one-off sort of Indonesian hybrid malt which would have been super exciting but you know that's news to us that's probably news to everybody because we can never ever taste that or even track down where those casks went to if we find a Glenvor production book uh, we know the days potentially when that those faints were used in turn you could probably find i don't know maybe a filling spirit book which shows when they were filled and maybe into which cask number and from there you could probably say but again you're probably limiting yourself because yeah single single cask bottlings of glenvor you know weren't really i mean single malt was not really massive like it is today uh, it was blending uh, or maybe you know, retailers offerings um, at, you know, bespoke um, wine, wine merchants and spirit merchants so that's gone but it's still an tantalizing prospect but anyway to get back to the entry um, you know Alan uh, in that particular Glen Alban situation he speculated what would happen at Glenvor and you know they would have been in the same situation once production stopped 
they've got faints. What are you going to do? Uh, well, the most logical explanation for him would be just as they did in Glenoban, put it into casks and put it aside until it's needed. Um, and that seems reasonable. But the actual entry here, um, I'll read to you. Honourable Sirs, 946 proof gallons of the bonding faints, so I guess that's, you know, the ending, have been redistilled. And the quantity of spirits produced therefrom is 566.5 proof gallons. Your obedient servant, G.W. Peterkin, officer of Glenvore. Uh, then that in itself shows that for some reason Glenvore almost um, fired up again. Um, we know that Glenvore closed on the 26th of March 1943 uh, due to war restrictions. But for some reason, um, merely just under two months later, they fire up again just to run these faints and produce some spirit. Um, so they have now 566 proof gallons. Oh, what's that? A couple casks. Um, so interesting as to why. But anyway, there's an entry at the bottom from the commissioners, uh, who obviously the the power, the central power when it comes to distilling and production and customs and excise. So they go in to talk about the overproduction, um, prorattering it, um, and also they mention uh, Little Mill Distillery. So there's a prorata division between McKinley's and Burney, 1942 quarter to be on behalf of Little Mill Distillery, McLachlan's and Auchentoshan. So it did cross my mind when I was reading this. Are these the last distilleries that were operating round about that time and they haven't used up their quota or there's still a little bit of excess and they've got they've seen the opportunity to produce more spirit so they'll get the run in and yeah they've got you know they've almost if they're spreading it around between distilleries you've got a quota you've got some excess so that seems to what's happened there um so that was very interesting um and quite a quite a detailed our entry with all the the additional handwriting at the bottom um, McLachlan's were best known as a blender um, for their age statements and I think the five castle range I've named there so again after that you've probably got more faints again so it's a dwindling pool of faints but it, there's still the possibility again they received the same fate and were cast and put aside but we will never know from the, the faints from this run because it's never mentioned again in the logbook I can tell you that so there you have it. Um, I've probably talked for way too long and given you far too much uh, Glenvore information. As always, thank you so much for listening and for reading the site. Um, we will continue to take over. Um, hopefully this year I shall bring you some more distillery plans. That's certainly one area. Uh, there are some books as well with photographs I need to look at. Um, and I also have the some books themselves which I want to think a little bit about more and obviously some whiskey reviews uh, we recently pulled the the plug as it were on the um, signatory ceramic 16 year old and we will do more um, again some people have kindly generously given me samples of Glenvore to review so we will do that and add them to the library and also on the cards all going well a tasting next year uh, in London, where we will pull maybe five 
corks from Glenvor bottles and we shall have a great night. But anyway, for now, thank you. The work continues. Do not worry. It's on a weekly basis. It's happening. Uh, I am continuously um, thinking of dates and events and Glenvor. So um, if you do uh, bump into me and I seem distracted, that's nothing to do with you. That is literally my head is thinking of... Um, what was it in the last entry I was doing? Yes, yes, potential pilfering. Um, we have the first mention of potential pilfering that we know of in the logbook um, between 1936 and 1960s because we, we are missing that first logbook, but potentially, I, I think about this in the article, not to quote on tangent, but I think pilfering a John Burney distillery would have been, uh, you know, instant dismissal and probably uh, something else from John as well. Um, so I think, you know, these were very professionally run and secure distilleries. So uh, the pilfering isn't what you think it is, but it's very interesting to see that, obviously, the awareness of everyone highlighting a potential issue. But I my gut tells me I don't think there would have been any employee at Glenvor stupid enough to try and take that spirit out of the warehouse um, without you know, approval beforehand. Um, but anyway, we'll find out hopefully if we ever find that first logbook. But thank you for listening and I will see you for the next podcast. <laughs>